I had the privilege of preaching a couple weeks ago, and it was in one of those like transition passages, which I think is, this is kind of one of those passages as well here. Um, I'm going to read through Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Um, the translation that, and this may be helpful for you to know, uh, the translation that I'm reading from is the NRSV, so you might have a different one in front of you, NIV or NLT or some other KJV, that's okay, um, but I'm, I just wanted you to know what I'm working out of this morning. So I'm going to read the scripture passage as a whole, and then I'm going to kind of walk us through with some different ideas and thoughts about what's actually happening here in this passage. So, Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine all over the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. When uh, I want to take us back, and I don't know if you remember, of course you don't remember my sermon, but now that Pastor Sean has posted it on the website, you can go back and listen to me again. Um, but if you remember, actually, you don't have to. I'm going to tell you. There's an anchor statement that I really think holds us through the entire book of Acts. And the entire book of Acts is long, right? Um, there's an anchor statement in Acts 1.8, and I'm going to just try and do it off the top of my head. Basically, it says this. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the world earth okay so maybe that's just a, a paraphrase it's something of that and that is it's like I don't know I think it's like Luke's thesis statement this is what you're gonna do this is what's gonna happen and then he goes throughout the whole book of Acts and he shows us how that happens right how people become witnesses to the living Christ so we're picking up this thread again right and Luke is taking us back to Stephen do you remember Stephen and the persecution right because persecution is what drives these disciples 
out of Jerusalem, out of even Israel. And Luke tells us that they go as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, which if you know your ancient Near Eastern geography is, or maybe even today, it's probably still an island, is an island, right? And Antioch, which was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. All three of these cities are Greek cities. They have literally left the motherland. Now, Jews were already all over the Roman Empire. They, uh, they had been persecuted in the past, believe it or not. And previous persecution um, had driven many of these Jews out long before the Jesus movement even began. Some of them had made their homes in places like Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And that there were Jews in these places is not surprising. And that the Jews that were driven out because of the persecution connected to Stephen were going back to these places and finding other Jews and then telling them about the Messiah that had come and that his kingdom was breaking in is also not surprising, I don't think. Verse 20, but among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, But is always a good word, not two T's, just one. When you're reading scripture, if you see a but, stop, maybe, right? But, so they were only talking to the Jews, but among those who were persecuted, some from Cyprus and Cyrene spoke also to the Greeks, non-Jews. I don't know, maybe I'm making something out of nothing, but I have to preach on something, so. (laughs) We don't get these evangelists' names, do we? Anonymous men or anonymous women or anonymous men and women decide to also tell a couple of Greeks about Jesus. How do you imagine that happening? Do you imagine them thinking, man, we just really need to share Jesus with everybody around us, so they start targeting groups and reaching out? Do you imagine that somehow they're more progressive than Peter, who last week we heard really had to be, I don't know, transformed in the way that he was thinking? You know, Pastor Sean gave me this uh, really good book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I don't know if he's invited any of you to read it, but it's actually a really good book in terms of the inside of the early church. Maybe a little bit more academic if, uh, if you're not really into that thing. Another book that you could read would be um, from a sociological perspective, uh, written by Rodney Stark called the Rise, of, the, the Rise of Christianity, something like that, Rodney Stark. It might be a little bit easier, but this is really good. And I apologize if I'm quoting, but I, I'm trying to help us. This is, I think he wrote it best, and I'm not a historian. So I, I want us to kind of figure out how did, how did these Jews, how did these Jewish Christians begin sharing their faith with other people around them, Greeks. And so he writes this, Alan Kreider. As we have seen, Christians lived among non-Christian neighbors, generally in tight circumstances. Privacy was scarce, 
And in the course of daily life, the Christians ascended and descended stairs, bought items from street vendors, and carried food to meetings and to friends' houses. The believers, whose dress was often simple and unostentatious, did not immediately reveal their identity to passerbyers, but their identity could emerge as relationships developed. But their identity could emerge as relationships developed. Sometimes this came as a surprise. A good man, they say, this Caius, Caius, I don't know, these are Greek words, only that he is a Christian. At times, breakthroughs occurred when Christians offered to pray for sick neighbors, but if the early Christians had strategies for converting people, they did not teach these or write about them. As Origen, who is an early theologian, put it in a Sunday sermon, he said, you catechumens, those of you who are coming to faith, basically, who gathered you into the church? It's a question. What goad compelled you to leave your houses and come together in the assembly? We did not go to you from house to house. The Father Almighty put this zeal into your hearts by his invisible power. Instead of urging the Christians to go from house to house or recommending that they replace their evangelistic methods with something more effective, Origen expressed his patient trust in God's invisible power. How then did the church grow? Scholars have seen the church's growth as coming about through something modest. Casual contact. Contact had come about in innumerable ways through the translocal networks of family and profession in which most people participated. Masters interacted with slaves, residents with neighbors, and above all, believers networked with relatives and work colleagues. In all these relationships, effective bonds were formed. The most reliable means of communicating the attractiveness of the faith to others and enticing them to investigate things further was the Christian's character, bearing, and behavior. The habitus of the individual Christian was crucial. Basically, this is it. These Christians who had been persecuted lived their lives. They lived their lives in direct worship, not just when they gathered, when they gathered, but in direct worship to Jesus at all times. And people took notice. People took notice. How did the first Christian church of Antioch get established? It was because women and men who will have no historical credit attached to their names developed relationships with their Greek neighbors. It just sounds super simple, right? They had casual contact with people all around them. They didn't go out and spread the word as you might imagine an evangelist would today, but instead lived such peculiar and odd lives that people were actually curious about them. Out of that, or maybe it's better to say that in the midst of that, God was at work. Literally, he was with them, right? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. Right? That origin quote, 
invisible power. God is at work in the lives of Gentiles too. Yes, Gentiles too. And then we get to verse 22, and it says this, News came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Man, news travels fast, even in the ancient world. Or maybe their ears were already perked at the, uh, because of everything that had happened in Peter's life, right? So the people down at headquarters <laughs> in Jerusalem, they decide to send Barnabas. And I just want to give you a quick refresher on who Barnabas is. If we go all the way back to Acts chapter 4, we read this. There was a Levite a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Oh, that Barnabas. Okay. They send him. Maybe because... He's a native of Cyprus, so he might be familiar with that part of the world. Maybe he would have known the route. But also, I think it was because they trusted him, that he was a person of character. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. And so when Barnabas gets to Antioch, Luke tells us he saw the grace of God and he rejoiced. What did that look like? What does the grace of God look like among people? How do you recognize it? Did the Greeks who came to find life in Jesus now exhibit a life of repentance and surrender and wholeness? I don't know. I want to come back to that question in a minute. Luke, though, wants us to know what kind of a person Barnabas is. He is portrayed in this really great light. Can you imagine... If we all said, Pastor Sean was a good man, a generous man, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and a man full of faith. Wait, we do say that, don't we? We say that. <laughs> a man with long hair. That's not in here. That's uh, the other dude. What's his name? Samson. That's right. Luke wants us to know, though, what kind of a person Barnabas is, Right? He is a good man, a generous man, a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of faith. And so, as he exhorts the church there as they're beginning, many more people are brought against the Lord. Can you imagine it? Barnabas telling them, keep on keeping on. What you've got, what you're doing is right. Keep living your lives. Keep shining. So he exhorts them, and then Barnabas gets this great idea. What happens next, I think, is so interesting. Instead of returning back south, back to headquarters to report to the apostles in Jerusalem, he goes northeast. He goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Here's a good question. Would we have a Paul if we didn't have a Barnabas? 
You will remember that after his dramatic conversion experience, Saul goes to Jerusalem and the disciples are afraid of him. Rightly so. He was persecuting them. But Barnabas takes up for him and brings him to the apostles and explains to them the transformation of Saul. The transformation of Saul, who was the man who stood by giving approval while Stephen was being murdered. Two the man who had an experience on the road to Damascus that transformed and changed his call. From that which was persecuting those who were following Jesus to now inviting those to come and follow him. No, actually, I do not think we would have the ministry of Paul if we did not have the ministry of Barnabas a ministry of mentorship, and a ministry of encouragement. Verse 26 tells us, And when we had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So he goes to Tarsus, he finds Paul, he brings him to Antioch. And if the apostles approved or disapproved, we do not know. And together, this dynamic duo spends an entire year together in Antioch, helping, helping to strengthen the first Christian church of Antioch. And Antioch then becomes famous for naming these strange Jesus followers Christians. Now, if you read different commentaries, some will say that this was a derogatory name. It was uh, maybe... I think it maybe was. Christian may have been derogatory in the sense that maybe evangelical is today. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was a termed, it was a term dubbed by those looking in. Right? They didn't say, hey, let's call ourselves Christians. No, it was those around them. They were called this by those who were taking notice of them and their odd and provocative lifestyle. That these people oriented their lives around this person they called the Christ. They oriented their lives around him and his teachings. They were becoming distinct even from the Jews who in the ancient world were already oddballs. And then Luke tells us that there was, in that time, prophets coming from Jerusalem to Antioch. Someone named Agabus comes from Jerusalem and predicts a famine. And then, this is interesting, in this, the church responds. This newly formed baby church, they respond to this crisis. These Christians don't wait to verify if Agabus's prophecy is going to come true. He tells the church there's going to be a famine and the disciples make a choice to send relief. Send relief to their brothers and sisters in Judea. And I don't know, that really blows my mind. Because what we're thinking, what I'm thinking through here in this passage is, what are the distinctives? What are the distinctives of the early church? What makes them stand out in this world, right? Um, it hasn't happened yet, this famine. 
And the response of the church is to send relief money. Earlier, my question was this. uh, What is it about the grace of God that Barnabas evidenced in the lives of those Greek women and men who decided to unite their lives with the Jewish women and men in surrender to Jesus Christ? What is this grace that he saw and rejoiced in, right? I think Barnabas saw their generosity. I think Barnabas saw them caring for one another. I don't think it was the style of worship that they had. In Acts 4, um, we keep coming back to that. In Acts 4, Luke tells us, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. You remember this, right? With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned houses or land sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then it tells us that little blurb about this Levite, this Cyprian Jew, this guy named Joseph who became Barnabas, who owned a field and then sold it and then laid it at the apostles' feet. Of course, here in 4, they're speaking of those believers in Jerusalem, right? But could it be possible that Luke wants us to see the parallel, right? That Luke wants us to see that in this new church that's formed in Antioch, they are doing the same things that the early Jerusalem church did, and that this is what marks the people of God who follow Jesus, That the things that marked those early adopters of faith in Christ was also the same things that marked those who were coming into faith in Christ in another part of the Roman Empire, indeed, even among the Greeks. These are the distinctives of Christian faith, generosity and hospitality, caring and sharing, and I think also freedom from material things, right? Freedom from ownership or possession of material goods. Not that people didn't have them. Obviously, Barnabas was a landowner. But instead of hoarding it, instead of keeping it, he releases it. He shares it. The Christian church in Antioch responds with compassion and generosity to brothers and sisters they've not even met. And to a crisis that hasn't even happened yet. Because their discipleship, in their discipleship, they have come to understand that their lives are intricately connected to their neighbors. And that in the family of faith, we are one. Should we be surprised since Barnabas was their rabbi? I don't think so.
So somebody told me that we're in the middle of a global pandemic <laughs> crisis. And, you know, there's, yeah. You imagine different people that have been financially impacted because of it. I mean, there's just crisis after crisis, right? We're just living in this really intense time. And um, it's not just financial crisis, it's health crisis, it's identity crisis. <laughs> Are you having an identity crisis? We're six months in. And um, I've been reading articles about um, like that six month wall, right? Um, if you're interested, you can reach out to me and I'll send you some of the articles that, I'm, I've, that talk about it. So we're kind of hitting this interesting wall and that in itself can become a crisis. Like, what's going to happen? Obviously, there's so much that's unknown. We don't have an Agabus. <laughs> Do we have an Agabus around here? Who's going to tell us what's going to happen next? <sighs> and in all of that, we're also, as a nation, walking towards an, a really four weeks or five weeks into an election, right? What is the thing that is going to mark the Christian church today? I think these are things we need to wrestle with and grapple with. But when we look back at the early church and we think about the Holy Spirit moving and this thing about witnesses to Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? This progression and this movement always for the other, that God's radical love is continuing to embrace and gather in people, all people. And then we see people, just normal people, they are unnamed, right? This is no Billy Graham. People who just live their lives in connection to or in witness to the risen Lord. And then people around them just caught that. Like they were salty, right? They were salt and they were light. And out of that, a church is born. The first church outside of Israel. Think about these things. What does it mean for us? What are, if we're coming back to the basics, what are the things that we need to respond to? And we're going to turn now to the offering of our hearts and lives. I want to encourage you to light a candle for Pastor Sean's team. And obviously also for Mosaic and Seattle First Church. But there are other things we can be lighting candles for and turning to the Lord in prayer. And maybe as we do that, the spirit of the living God might compel or inspire you to respond to something, to a need. Um, that however we do that, we would find a posture that allows us to be uh, in surrender to the Holy Spirit that we would give all of ourselves, right? Offering of our hearts and lives, it's not just a financial thing. So uh, giving of our, of our financial means is one way of doing that, right? And it's an important thing. But also there are ways that we can give of ourselves. And so I'm gonna, we're going to invite Pastor Terry to come, and he's going to lead us in that as we turn our hearts in prayer.